Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Talk Recorded live. Good evening. This is our first PTAC, Political Economic Technology Action Committee, parent workshop, and the topic is gifted education. Part of what the mission for PTAC is, is to be the voice for our children, our future dreamers, leaders, and achievers who have not reached the age where they can advocate for themselves. They can't vote. They aren't able to stand up at city council meetings. They aren't able to go to school board meetings. They're pretty much relying on us, their family members, their parents, their cousins, their aunts, their uncles, their grandparents, to make sure that resources in society are carved aside so that they have access to them. And one of the ways we do that is through educating each other um, about what all is out there and what we need to do to reach out and attain those items. Tonight, I'm so excited that we have two nationally, I would say internationally known experts on gifted education, Dr. Donna Ford and Dr. Joy Lawson Davis. Both have um, either taught, attended, or mentored people at some of the most prestigious universities across the country. And uh, I would go through their bios, but I think that would take most of the calls. <laughs> Just yeah. trust me in knowing that you can Google Donna Ford, you can Google Dr. Um, Dr. Donna Ford, Dr. Joy Lawson Davis, and you will find their websites, you will find their books, their publications, their collaborations that they've done with other people throughout the country, cities, states, um, municipalities, they've done it all. Um, one, two of the books that we're highlighting as well that we think that every parent who listens to this rebroadcast or listening live should be aware of and have it on their shelf um, are the books Recruiting and Retaining Culturally D Different Students in Gifted Education by Dr. Donna Ford, PhD, well, Donna Ford, PhD, and Bright, Talented, and Black, which is um, Dr. Joy Lawson Davis. Uh, book. Um, these books contain many of the things that they're going to share with us tonight, but we have the privilege of having them live um, with us. They're going to talk to us about the importance of gifted education, how do you identify gifted students, and what type of insight can they give to the parents who are listening live and listening to the rebroadcast that they can use for the benefit of their child or children in their family tree, as well as what are some instructional tips that they um, have experienced, researched, and um, can share with us. So um, right off the bat, I would say I have spent quite a bit of time trying to promote, say, this workshop, for example, or just the need for parents to know about gifted programs. And surprisingly, I've had some discussions with parents who really don't think it's important. Um, when I say they don't think it's important, they don't think it relates to their child. They figure if their child was really gifted, somebody would have told them by now, or they would have been able to see it because they would have had straight A's across all their report cards, and they wouldn't get in trouble, and they would have never gotten any calls from the teacher, and so on and so forth. Um, 
where I know I'm not an expert, but I could just sit down and look at the child's eyes and tell that there's a lot more going on than probably what most people are are, um, giving them credit to. So that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this workshop is to spread and multiply the awareness that this isn't just something for uh, a parent who knew at birth that their child was special, but everybody that walks around and interacts with the child might be able to gain something from what our two experts have researched and know from a hands-on experience. So I'd like to start off with the importance. Why is this important? Why should we even have this discussion? Good evening, Joan, and and the audience. Uh, I I want to start with uh, this uh, discussion about the importance of gifted education. Uh, Gifted education is a vehicle that is utilized across multiple states in in the in the nation, multiple districts across those states to provide high end or advanced learning for specific students. And because it's a vehicle that's provided for by tax dollars, federal tax dollars, state tax dollars, uh, local tax dollars, every parent who has a child who should be able to access those programs should know about these programs and take advantage of them. So, so for me, it's an important aspect of our political understanding about what schools do and how important what schools do is for every child who should be able to take advantage of anything that schools offer. And so these high-end advanced learning programs are already available and I believe about 46 out of the 50 states. Uh, local school districts have personnel on board who have specialized training, have degrees, they have special resources, curriculum materials, and uh, as Dr. Ford will tell you a little later, not all children have access. And so for African-American children in particular, we want to emphasize that if we want our children to have access to high-end and advanced learning that will better prepare them for honors, AP, International Baccalaureate, college preparation, then we need our children in these gifted programs also. Will we all uh, have an understanding of what giftedness is? Probably not, but that's the purpose of these kinds of programs. That's the purpose of reading our books. That's the purpose of going to workshops and then searching on the Internet more information about what giftedness is and how we get our children into these programs. What we found, and myself, I found, and I'm sure Dr. Ford has as well, is when we go about the communities and the states and districts talking to school district personnel about gifted education, and then we start talking to parents, we find that a large number of parents in many of our communities had no knowledge that there was even such a program going on in their district. That is abominable. You know, that, that really ought not to be happening in the 21st century, that there are some programs that are being held and that are being funded by the same tax dollars that other programs are being funded by, but it's a secret inside the school district. So we are really happy to be here tonight, to be able to share this with the wider community, to help black parents in particular understand the need for them to know more about gifted education and what gifted education can do for their children. Jones. Thank you for that. Yes, thank you for that opening. Now, I yeah. um, and I, just I, recently I, saw a situation. 
Uh, I was just going to say, I just recently saw a situation where um, there's a gifted program for what we have in Virginia called the Governor's School, the Virginia Governor's School, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and all children are able to, in theory, apply, but the reality is if a child has not completed Algebra One, then they're not eligible because the governor's schools do not offer Algebra One. And so you kind of got to work backwards. So if you have to have Algebra One by eighth grade, that -hmm. means you really can't be in basic math in the seventh grade. In the seventh grade, exactly. So what happens in local school districts here in Virginia, if uh, if you don't mind, Don, I'm going to share a little bit about what I know is going on in these districts. Many school districts have now been able to incorporate uh, high school level coursework into their middle school programs, and math is one place that they really have thought about whether or not children should be taking Algebra One in the seventh grade or the eighth grade. Well, we also know on the other end of it is that if they have not taken it, just like Joan just said, if they've not taken Algebra One by the seventh grade or by the eighth grade, they can't qualify for these high-end programs that are being made available to them in the, in the state of Virginia, and I would dare say in other localities as well. So that's one way that some students in some of these districts are being shut out from these programs. Either the schools are not making Algebra One readily available to a wider group of students or they're not doing the pre-assessment necessary to test them into Algebra One at the end of sixth grade, or they may be providing it, but only on a, on a case-by-case basis where a parent might say, my child is ready for Algebra One. Can you test them and test to see if they're ready for it? And then that child ends up being able to take Algebra One at the school or maybe even going over into a high school and taking Algebra One when they're in the eighth grade. So sometimes it's about advocacy. Sometimes it's about how progressive the school districts are. But sometimes it's just a matter of a school district a community coming together and saying, we have these students who should be ready for Algebra 1. You know, I'm not a mathematician, but I've worked with math specialists enough to know that there's really not that much of a problem in a school district. If they really, really want to go after this, they can do it. But it really sets these children in Virginia, especially at a disadvantage. I'm, I'm working with some districts, and I'm seeing this happen. And usually it's the districts that have a high percentage of black students or a high percentage of low-performing schools, high percentage of students in poverty that are not providing access to Algebra One, And so these uh, governor schools then end up being very elite districts, programs. They end up being very uh, uh, pr- programs where only the affluent students get to go to or those students go whose schools are more progressive. And that's really unfair. That, that's discrimination in, in the high sense. Uh, and, and we see that every day here in the state of Virginia. Dr. Ford, you had something I think I interrupted. I apologize. Oh, no problem. I just want to um, echo um, Dr. Davis's um, comments about um, the importance of parents really um, studying what's going on in their district and learning more about um, gifted programs. There's just so many benefits to having access to gifted programs but too often for deliberate reasons, meaning intentional reasons and unintentional reasons, as was just said, um, gifted education and AP classes are kept a big secret. Mm-hmm. Um, schools are not, um, you know, schools and educators are not going to 
go out and beg your children to be in gifted programs. You've got to know something about them. White and upper-income families know about gifted education from birth or when they from conception. They're trying to get their kids into gifted programs. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. We, we tend not to know. And this is why um, Dr. Davis, you know, has probably the number one book on parenting gifted children, especially African-Americans, you know, but it's just out there. She's been deliberate about telling our families, you've got to know something about gifted education. So I cannot really add more than what she said other than we've got to, as African-Americans, you know, as people of color, we've got to go out and learn what those options are. Gifted education, for the most part, are very racially and economically segregated, and they're Mm -hmm. basically operating as private schools within a public school. So we've got to learn how to advocate for our students. And both of us have, you know, written so much about this. But one of our main points is is that if if our children don't get identified as gifted, then uh, formally identified as gifted. They will use those gifts and talents in socially unacceptable ways. And that, you know, that leads to, you know, some other kinds of things. But our, our kids have to be identified as gifted, and we as families have to learn how to advocate for our children. There are only about a handful, no, I'm sorry, two handful of educators out there doing the work we're doing, fight every day to make sure our black kids are in gifted programs. So, you need to read, you know, read our work and learn more about how you can advocate um, for our students. Gifted education is a need, just like if your child has a learning disability or some other kind of special education issue or need, um, our kids need to be identified as gifted. And, um, you know, we could um, in a few minutes talk about how drastic the underrepresentation um, is, but it takes parents advocating for their, our children in order for them to get access, and it's going to be a battle in some situations. But if, you know, our kids have 13, so to speak, years um, in school, and they need to be challenged all 13 years. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, that transition to our second topic. We've just covered, if anyone's just coming late, um, I see that we have a caller from New York. Um, we've got you on mute because we're going to keep all the background noise to a bare minimum, and then uh, we'll have an opportunity where you'll be able to talk with them before we end at 8. Um, so bear with us. Our second part of this conversation is on identification. Can a child be gifted and they don't have A's and B's? How would a parent, um, particularly a grandparent that's raising a child who grew up in a segregated system, what in the world, how would they know that they even are dealing with a gifted child? And are white students more gifted since the statistics show that, um, you know, more of these programs are predominantly white? Um, how, how do you reconcile? I know we talked about parents need to advocate and parents needing to, to do more, but what, what is the, I guess, what's the identification keys that um, someone could be looking out for, even with babies? that they, they just have on their lap. Any tips or anything? Uh, well, well, so that's a um, very important question, and it's a two-part question at least. One, white students are no more gifted than black and Hispanic or any other population. They end up 
being um, more prevalent in gifted programs because white most teachers are white and most most teachers are going to refer white students. There is absolutely, without a doubt, no question, and it should not be a question in any parent's mind, that whites are more intelligent than any other um, group of students. So, frankly, and I just have to be blunt, racism is an issue. Mm-hmm. White teachers mm-hmm. are referring, every every piece of data indicates that white teachers refer white students, and every day, all the data indicate that white teachers under-refer black and Hispanic students. So one of the first ways I want, we want families to know, Dr. Davis and I want families to know, one of these first ways, or maybe the primary way you can, you can get your child into gifted programs, or I'm sorry, or that children enter gifted programs is because a teacher refers them. But if a teacher has biases, if a teacher is racist, if a teacher has stereotypes, you know, all the negative stuff, they're not going to refer black and Hispanic children for gifted programs. After referral in most districts, I'm talking about in at least 90% of districts, you know, comes testing issues. But first, we have to have teachers who recognize gifts and talents in our students. So I want all, we want all the families to know that um, their children are more capable than what, you know, than what many teachers um, recognize. So let's, let's put race aside you know, with the notion that um, others are more capable. My first book in 1996 was was about was called "Reversing Underachievement Among Gifted Black Students," and in that book, I indicated that we have many students who are gifted, you know, and black, but because they've not been identified, they don't do well in school. So yes, it is definitely possible to be gifted and to be an underachiever. It's possible to be gifted to not like reading. It's possible to be gifted and not like science, you know, to make less than A's and B's. So any parent out there, you know, who's listening or will listen needs to know that your child could be making C's in school. Your child might even be failing in school and could still Mm -hmm. be gifted. You have to get on the website um, for your state gifted organization or the Department of Education's uh, website and look up the definition of gifted and look up the criteria um, of, for gifted to start um, getting a better sense of what they mean by giftedness in your state and in your school district. But no matter what that definition says, your child could still be gifted or be disengaged um, in school, be a behavioral problem, so to speak, um, in school, don't think that get the children are perfect and get the children like school and get the children do well, you know, um, all the time. And this is where, you know, Dr. Davis and I, you know, uh, try to focus on and, and to address these issues so that even if our students are not doing well, they still mm-hmm. should be receiving services. Uh, let me let me chime in here for a second. You know, Donna makes a, such a great point about about these uh, behaviors that some children display. You know, our children in school can uh, be seen who may be as gifted can be seen as a behavior problem. For example, if you have a child who is a very logical thinker and uh, they are outsmarting the teacher, 
and uh, they may raise their hand more than other children do and say things out loud to the teacher that may sound to the teacher to be disrespectful when all they're doing is straightening the teacher's logic out. That child then will be uh, referred to the office for, <laughs> you know, for being for being disrespectful or for, you know, for 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 breaking rules that the school has set that that keeps children from questioning adults. So the same child who is very very bright very logical, very analytical, um, sometimes is very impatient with people who are authority figures but who are not quite as smart as they say they are. That same child, especially if they have color in their skin, that child is going to get into trouble in school, whereas another child who's white may very well be referred to the math, to the math gifted program or the science gifted program or the humanities gifted program at, at a young age because they're the one that's Answer, not not know all the answers, but are asking all the questions, you know, and they're the ones who are challenging the authority. And so, yes, we, you know, when we have discriminatory adults in classrooms and in schools, and the majority, 80% of classroom teachers across the nation are middle middle class white females, and they're in classrooms with children who don't look like them, who have not had their experience, they are sometimes threatened by these young people, even as early as primary school. We read an article that was posted online a few weeks ago about a child or who, who, was being, uh, who had been disciplined and been put out of school because they raised their hand too many times. That wouldn't happen if that, ch- that child happened to be black, of course. If that child were a white child and they raised their hand too many times, that teacher would have checked that on a checklist on their desk Instead, when it's time to refer the child for advanced placement or, or, or for gifted services, this is one that I'm putting through. They wouldn't put through a black child who has the same behavior. So our behaviors are seen as aberrant behaviors, whereas theirs may be seen as positive behaviors simply because of the discriminatory uh, nature of that classroom teacher, that bias in, that's embedded in that teacher's behavior about black kids. And without proper training, about what cultural competency training, cultural diversity training, whatever we want to call it, without that training, without the school district insisting that these students are treated the same, then it's going to continue to go on, and it goes on every day. And let and Joan and um, and uh, let me let me add this, and Joy, let me add this as well. Um, let's give um, our parents a resource. So mm-hmm. one of the number one. Um, ways that I collect data on um, underrepresentation of our students in gifted programs is the Office for Civil Rights website. Mm-hmm. So they can go to ocrdata.ed.gov, and you can click on your child's school building specifically, or you can mm-hmm. check, click on the school district, and, of course, you can click on the state and the nation. But mm-hmm. wherever your child goes to school, you can go to ocrdata.ed.gov, and you can specifically find what's going on in terms of demographics of your school district. So I just want to give two quick pieces of information. So mm-hmm. as of the most recent OCR data, um, black students are are 19% of our public schools, but they're only 10% of gifted programs. We're talking about approximately 50% discrepancy, 50% underrepresentation, and that is tantamount to about 250,000 black students who do not have access to gifted programs, and that's nationally. And then you can mm-hmm. look at your state, and you can look at your school district, and you can look at your school building. 
Um, I was talking to a school district a couple of days ago where black students are 40, 40, 40% of their school district were represented only, I I think it was four, almost I'm sorry, almost 5%, but uh, 4.6%, whatever it was, of the gifted program. How is it that a district is almost 40% black and you can only identify 4% of the gifted kids, I'm sorry, 4% of blacks as gifted? That is one Mm -hmm. of the most egregious, racist, problematic examples in Mm -hmm. that district, going back to what Dr. Um, Davis was talking about, how in the world could families not be privy to that information? Um, They could be in that district. So this is where you have to be informed. We we tend to know about special ed. We tend to know about suspension and expulsion. Mm -hmm. We don't tend to know about gifted, advanced placement, and IB classes. So the statistics in terms of our underrepresentation is often astounding, and mm-hmm. some of the most mm-hmm. egregious, as as was just said, data out there. Go to that OCR website, look up your school building, not just your district, and you will be. I'm, I'm, many parents will be appalled about mm-hmm. the lack of access, about the, mm-hmm. the racially segregated. Um, programs within their school district is within their school school building and that should be enough to set us on fire to address these issues and mm-hmm. uh, get to to be redundant there are too few blacks interested in gifted education and i would mm-hmm. even say if this was a talk right now on special education there probably be a thousand parents on this line mm-hmm. when we're talking about gifted mm-hmm. education we're like missing in action, and that's problematic. We're going to do something about that because this replay will be available, and every time I hear someone, um, I, I shouldn't say whine or complain about what's not happening, I'm going to say, have you listened to this conference on gifted education and visit these websites that you can get the information? I want to transition to our third topic, um, which is on insight. Um, mm-hmm. These are questions that came from PTAC members. Are there some instances where a child is identified as being gifted simply by appearances, meaning they're well-dressed, they have a certain (laughs) look about them, and all of a sudden, without any tests being taken, they are placed into the gifted program? What do we ask for after the child is tested and then denied entrance into a gifted program Mm-hmm. And gifted more about home training versus their natural gifts they were born with. Mm-hmm. And the last question in, in this topic area is, is it possible that every child is gifted? And how do you determine those gifts? And what are ways that parenting style can actually stifle their child's gifts? Mm. Okay. Um, this started the first question and this said uh about the the possibility of a student uh being identified or being placed in a gifted program just simply because of the way they look. Um it, it, it may appear that way, but
but schools are on on alert now to what's happening in the Office of Civil Rights, as uh, Dr. Ford just shared with us, the uh, the website. And so they are very uh, cautious about making those kinds of mistakes. Now, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that that didn't happen some years ago, but I don't think today that school systems are going to be foolish enough to just place the student in a gifted program without having gone through a process. And so I, I really don't think that's something that does occur. It sometimes appears that way. And again, it appears that way, like I said earlier, because when teachers think that some students have behaviors that are more aberrant or more troublesome, then they, those are the students they're not going to refer. And it, it may look like they're more affluent, as you say, well-dressed. That's the kid who gets referred. And because that child comes into school with a certain level of reading, with a certain cultural background in terms of what they've been exposed to, uh, they've, been, they've been fed a lot of academic materials in the womb even, you know. And so then those mm -hmm. children, when they come into school, appear to be bright. But they, that, that doesn't always pan out over time. But that does that that's the way it looks if you have especially if you have a school where uh there is a high population because of some kind of redistricting that's gone on there's a population of students there from across town that's had to come into a school setting and then when you go down the hall that you go down the hall you look at the window and all the kids in the gifted class are are white and well dressed okay and then those other children are the ones who are not in the program and so it it appears that way but they have gone through a process of identification. Is the identification process appropriate and non-biased? Probably not, but that's the way it looks now. So, so that's that's. I, I wanted to kind of put that out there. Probably not, but that's the way it looks. I just read a piece maybe a couple of weeks ago out of Miami, and Don, I know you read that piece as well from a a parent who actually used to work for a, 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 government, a government office, and uh, it was a mother and a father who wrote an article together, um, are all the, gift, all the smart kids in my daughter, why are all the smart kids in my daughter's school white? These parents were angry because right. both of their daughters had been, um, it was in the Miami Herald, by the way, um, and if you don't have the link, Joan, I'll send it to you. Um, but these parents had their daughters had gone through a process and uh, of to to get into the gifted program, and neither one of them were found eligible. And in one case, one of the daughters, who the parents believed to be very very creative, uh, and mind you, this is a middle class family, probably upper middle class family. Uh, the daughter, her teacher actually gave her a zero on a creativity rating scale. Now you can tell, can you tell me, please, Donna? How can any teacher give a child a zero rating on a creativity scale unless that teacher doesn't understand what creativity is all about, period? Um, and so right. because of that zero rating by that teacher, the little girl's profile didn't even go through the whole process. She was cut out. The teacher then became the gatekeeper, and the gate came down, and the little girl wasn't, wasn't even considered. And so that happens, as Donna said earlier, it happens on a day-to-day -day basis in schools everywhere, all the more reason why parents need to understand what this process is all about, you know, what the language is, what the procedures are. And so if, as you asked, the other, your second question was, what happens if you go, your child goes through this process and then they're found not eligible? What happens next? What do they ask for? The first thing you do is, is uh find out what the school's appeals process is. Every school district who has a gifted program in place, who has an identification protocol in place, 
should have an appeals process. Find out what that appeals process is, how, what is the time frame, and it has to be a reasonable time frame that a parent can file an appeal. The next thing you do is ask for those test results. You want to know what the, what the tests were, what tests they, they administered, what your child's score was. Then you also want to know what is the school district's cutoff, which should be against the law, but they do have cutoff scores. What's the cutoff and or, you know, what were the criteria that kept your child from being identified based on what the school district says is gifted? We need to ask those questions. That information belongs to parents. Parents need to ask for and and have that information on hand in order for them to make a good decision about what do we where do we go from here. But there has to be a process that allows them to appeal uh, such a decision. And and I think your appeal will have power to it when you can share what you know from the Office for Civil Rights for your school district or mm-hmm. your school building. So when you can walk in there and say, look, you said my child, who's African-American, do not meet the criteria, is not identified as gifted, but we represent X, Y, Z percent of the school district, but you're only identifying, you know, this percent, then you add more power to Mm -hmm. your argument in terms of uh, making sure your children, and of course not just your children, but other children, you know, have, um, have access. And... You know, as, as Joy said, as Dr. David said as well, you know, one of the other questions um, in the, I think the four that you asked is about his giftedness, more about home training versus natural gifts. I can't speak for Joy, but I think we might, we both agree. You know, giftedness, you know, the potential is there, but mm-hmm. what we do at home matters Make a great a deal. So if you're not reading to your children, talking to your children, nurturing um, whatever potential is in them, them in terms of gifts and talents, you're not likely to see those gifts and talents come to fruition. There's lots of data indicating that, um, unfortunately, you know, black parents may be less patient in terms of um, talking to their children and answering the questions in complete sentences and giving lots of details and explanations and helping them make connections. So as a result, you know, we might, you know, be multitasking and our children are asking us lots of questions. And we're like, you know, leave me alone, I'm busy. You know, mm-hmm. we're, here to go, we're at the grocery store. I'm not trying to talk to you mm-hmm. about this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. Every single minute that we're with our children is an opportunity to teach them. them. It's an opportunity to nurture their gifts and talents. You don't Mm -hmm. cut it off because you're at the grocery store. You don't cut it off because you're in the car. Every single minute is an opportunity, you know, to keep nurturing those gifts and talents. So that's one thing that we need to do a better job of um, Mm -hmm. as as African Americans or as as, as people of color. Every time our children are asking a question, and they're going to ask, ask a lot of questions, we need to be patient, and we need to take time with it. And if we don't know those answers, we need to find um, some answers. So, right. 
Um, it, it's just really important. You know, you ask, mm-hmm. is it possible that every child is gifted? Um, I can, I'm, now, this one, I'm really not speaking for joy. But, mm-hmm. no, every child is not gifted. No. Every child has something they're strong at. <laughs> every child has something they're interested in and they're good at. But, no, every child is not gifted. And right. we could ask the same thing in special education. Does every mm-hmm. child have a special education need? No, they don't. No. So. No. We need to find out what our children are good at, what they're interested in, nurture it, and whatever their their uh, weaknesses are, shortcomings are. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to, you know, try to improve that. But no, every child is not gifted. Right. Absolutely uh, not. not. Yeah. And <laughs> as much as I want to see more black kids identified as gifted, that's just not not the case. No. So no. We play a big role. And making mm-hmm. sure that whatever potential our children have, you know, that comes, you know, to, uh, to fruition. Right. Um, so we we play a role in that. So we want to hold teachers accountable. We got to hold ourselves accountable as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Great so self accountability yeah. is is mm-hmm. really essential as well. So I, I want to go back, and I do I agree with uh, Dr. Ford on both accounts. Nature versus nurture. It's a little bit of both. Uh, I want I right. want to uh, encourage parents to speak in full sentences to their children. Uh, I want to encourage parents to use every opportunity as a teachable moment. So if they're in the grocery store, they they can do they can be categorizing, they can be counting, mm-hmm. they can be looking at their colors, they can be doing all kinds of things. They can actually take a list and go through the store. In some cases, if it's a safe environment, and they can begin picking up some items for you. But if they ask a question, I don't care how tired we are, we have to answer that question and not with a shut up. But a, we answer that question with a full sentence and then expect that they're going to respond to you. And that's how uh, some other children have an opportunity when they're younger to start speaking in full sentences because their parents speak to them in full sentences and they mimic what we do. And so, again, there's a lot about the nurturing that goes on. And we don't have to be rich. No. We don't have to be rich. I'm going right. to repeat that. We don't have to be rich to nurture giftedness in our children when they have that cognitive capacity already. You don't have to have a lot of money. There's many, many, many things that parents can do in order to enrich their child's experience that doesn't cost a great deal of money. We just have to understand that this is who they are, and in order for them to become the person they should be, there's some things we're going to have to do at home a little differently. And it doesn't matter to me whether the cousin so-and-so or somebody down the street or somebody else in another environment who may live nearby even who is doing certain things. This is where I'm going to hold myself accountable in my home because this is how I'm going to treat my children. And that's what parents need to come to understand that they have a responsibility. When they notice that that child is a little more logical, a little more analytical, they do ask a lot of questions, um, They and they, and they um, are able to recall something, today that they learned three weeks ago, and you're like, wow, how did they remember that? So that tells us a little bit about their memory. They start organizing their toys in, in a certain way. Then it tells us a lot about the kind of a mind they have. Then that's our, that's our cue to start doing some things a little differently, you know, with that child. And, and, it is, and, it, and it, that is our responsibility. We, we have to be held accountable as parents and not wait until they get into sixth grade and somebody says, oh, by the way, we can't do this for your child because they haven't arrived at this point yet. When when they were in kindergarten or preschool, there were some things that we could have done a little bit differently. 
Yeah, it certainly does mean starting earlier. Um, last month, Joy and I were at the National Association for Get the Children. But I know on my flight home, uh, one of the legs, I think, was about an hour flight, and I sat next to a mom, a white mom, who had a 14-month-old daughter with her. And I intentionally sat by this mother because I wanted to see how she talked to her daughter and what right. she was going to do on that hour flight. You know, I was I, I do that all the time. I always <laughs> sit next to white mothers, well, moms, parents, period, with especially young children. On that hour flight, which, oh, my goodness, she must have read four books to that little girl. Mm-hmm. And I looked the whole mm-hmm. time, and I'm like, what would a black parent have done? What would I have done? What would somebody else have done? I study these parents, especially the ones right. that take a higher income. And right. then I, I, I go back and I give recommendations to our families. So that child is no more brighter, that little white 14-month-old, than a little black 14-month-old. But by the time her mother does that for the next five years, and we don't do that, it's going to have a big impact in terms of who looks gifted, is nothing, if nothing else. None mm-hmm. of us know what our children are capable of. So we've just got to assume that they can reach greater heights or great heights. So if, mm-hmm. I'm working, if, my, if my child is three, I'm going to teach them like they're four. If my mm-hmm. child is four, I'm going to teach them like they're six. If my child mm-hmm. is in the second grade, I'm going to expose them to 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 third and fourth grade content. So mm-hmm. if we can if we move the material or advanced material one to two years or grade levels above, we can make all of our children do better. I'm not saying they all will reach those um, levels, but you never know what your child can do unless you challenge them, unless you push them, unless you move them out of their comfort zone. And mm-hmm. when I've done that with my son and my grandson, nieces and nephews, those kind of things, they stepped up to the plate and met that challenge. But if right. you don't challenge them, you never know mm-hmm. what they can do. What they can do, right. That's excellent. That's excellent. Well, we are winding down. This time is going so fast. So we've got this one area that we haven't covered yet. It's our final topic, which is we've already covered, for those that just tuned in, um, we've covered why is this important. We talked about identification. We talked about just giving some insight and little pearls. And thank you so much for the, you know, example of everyday things that you've, you've actually seen on the airplane, um, traveling, um, not just in a research lab, but actual observation. And I always tease Grocery story, yeah. I tease people in a way and I say, you know, if your child can do the whipping and nay nay, they ought to be able to tell you the seven continents and go through <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Mhm. Mhm. Oh so now our final area is in the instruction area. Um some of the questions that P Tech parents had were are there any test prep resources um, how can someone provide tips for some of these home nurturing and gifted child? We'll get it. And you've covered some of those things. And then how is gifted different than a magnet program or prep school? We, you talked on it earlier about advanced placement courses, college preparatory courses. 
how would you distinguish? Because two things you all also said that I'd like for you to just unwrap a little bit for the, the parent that's listening that doesn't know or hasn't been exposed to it. You talked about nature versus nurture. Can you break that down a little bit about what that means for those that are listening and don't know, I've never heard that before? And I think the other term you mentioned it was nature versus nurture. Uh, well, let's just go with that. Break that down. Well, well, it's kind of a nature versus nurture. It, I mean, it's, it's, you know, is your child just born gifted or can you develop gifts and talents? And so what Joy and I are saying is it's a combination of both. Mm-hmm. Your child has a potential, but we never, you will never know what that potential is if you don't provide them opportunity. So, you know, it's kind of like people use the analogy of, like, growing plants or something like that. You know, a seed has the potential to be anything, but if you don't put it in the correct soil and if you don't give it the right amount of water and sunshine, you know, whatever it needs, it's never going to come to be what it was intended to be. You know, it's going to not flourish at all. So Mm -hmm. we have to assume our children can achieve great things, but we just can't just wait and say, oh, I'm not going to do anything about it. you got to read to your children. you got to make sure they read. you got to make sure you try to get them in the best environment possible. And the environment is just not at school. You know, it's mm-hmm. also at home. you got to make sure you expose them to things. you got to make sure mm-hmm. that that every every opportunity to teach, you take advantage of that. So your children could be... The, the the upcoming genius in the world, but if you don't do anything about, you know, a, a, a prodigy, you know, like let's just use music. Your child probably has the capability to be the greatest pianist in the world, but you never gave them lessons. So how will you know? You never mm-hmm. gave them the opportunity. So we have to keep doing exposure, 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 opportunity, and be consistent with that, that's what I'm talking about when I say nurture mm-hmm. versus, um, you know, um, environment. I believe that environment can have a greater impact on children than their genetic disposition. Your zip code is not your destiny. Your your skin is not your destiny. Your DNA is not your destiny. What you are exposed to is going to make you be a uh, reach your Potential. I mean, that's just my belief. I think white, many times whites want to argue that you're just born gifted. Well, mm-hmm. you're born with the potential to do great things, but if the environment is not right, you will never achieve to that. So as parents, going back to the first question, as parents, we have an obligation to make sure that we do the best we can with whatever our means are to make sure our children have an opportunity, you know, to be um, successful. So we, and even, so so we played, I think the environment Environment plays the biggest part in terms of our children being all that they, you know, can be. And that's why we we agreed and wanted to do Mm -hmm. um, this interview right here because we believe so much in their power of the environment Mm -hmm. and exposure Mm -hmm. and and parents. Mm -hmm. 
and and um and I just and I'll say this and I think it's about time for us to wrap up but I but to for parenting uh to to take a different frame in the uh in the black community is going to uh mean that parents have to understand the full scope of the impact that they have on their child's outcome. They have a great they have a great impact on the child's outcome, but they have to change the way they do things in the environment. It doesn't mean we have to change the way that we do things so that it matches or mirrors what happens in the in the affluent white community. It just means that we have to become more engaged. One of your questions earlier was about uh, I think the parents who called in earlier asked about what do I do to keep them from being bored. You keep them fully engaged. That's what you do. Uh-huh. You keep them fully engaged. I mean, from the morning, from the time they get up in the morning to the time they go to bed at night, you keep them fully engaged and using that mind of theirs. And you control that. You control the amount of time they spend playing. You control the amount of time they spend reading. You control the amount of time they spend uh, working on logic puzzles. You, you, you control the amount of time that they spend doing something enriching in the summertime. There's no such thing as a as a child uh, having brain drain in the summer if you engage that brain in the summertime and you take advantage of every single opportunity that is available. So we have to ask more questions about what kinds of summer programs that may be made available in the community. You know, what kinds of summer programs can my child afford to go to? Who has scholarships? You know, we have to be a little more forthcoming and outgoing as parents. You we don't have you don't have your child sitting at home for six to eight weeks in the summertime watching television or twisting their thumbs or playing a, playing a game when you know there's something else going on out there that he or she should be taking advantage of. So you you balance it. You give them something that's going to be recreational, but something also that's going to be cognitive, so they can use their brain in the summer as much as they use their physical body and get them involved and engaged in as many activities as possible. Does that mean that as a parent you're going to be tired (laughs) and that you're going to be spending a lot of your energy focusing on that child? Absolutely. You're responsible to focusing on them. You don't have many years with them to develop and to help them out and to get them into the right places that they need to be. Some of the biggest regrets that parents have over time is that when I had a chance, to send my child to this specialized program or get it involved, I listened and the child said, oh, I don't want to go, and we just we didn't send them. Or um, someone else said, oh, you don't want to do that. You can, you, he can come over here and sit at the house with my son all day long. He doesn't need to be at your, at your neighbor's house all day long because it's cheaper. You need to figure out a way to get an extra $200 so you can send him to that program where his mind is going to be more enriched and more engaged. So we have to take change the way we parent in order to bring out the best in our children. No, they're not all gifted, like Dr. Ford said, but we sure can change the ways that their outcomes are because of the way we change the way we parent. And that means we have to be more engaged, we have to be more creative, and we have to spend a little more time figuring out what's going to be best for my child. That's what the other folks do. That's what we need to be doing as well. Well, we are right at our ending time, so I want to thank everyone that was listening, um, that everyone that tunes in and listens to the replay on this. We covered, I think, a lot of ground, and I believe all of the um, questions um, did get answered that um, were posed. I want to just close with thanking our guests for coming on, sharing, being raw and candid and truthful, and hopefully 
hopefully everyone listening will share this information with family members, with friends, with neighbors, and just let them know that we've got to work together as a village. And that is one of the reasons why we set this call up. I'm thinking of a dozen other topics that we could even address <laughs> that deal with this. <laughs> right. <I'm sure>. Yeah. <laughs> it could go on and on and on. So um, I have a gifted student that wanted to say goodbye to everyone, and we'll see what she has to say. Or she disappeared. Uh-huh. Okay, she she ducked out. <laughs> but, okay. She's my inspiration because I tell everyone from the time she was, um, well, before she was in the womb, I was looking into programs and things that um, could stimulate her brain, and sometimes I think we've overstimulated, but <laughs> here we are, <laughs> mm-hmm. kind of make sure that we open doors for others. Right. So, anyway, well, thanks, to everyone. Happy holiday. Merry Christmas. And we look forward to the replay being available. should be available in about 30 minutes. Okay. Well, thank All you, right. Joan, for, thank for having, having us. us. Okay. Yeah, we appreciate you. Yes. Have thanks. a good, good night, night, everybody. Good Bye-bye. night. Good night. Take care. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. I'm eating chicken now. <laughs>